This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, Hugh Howey joins me to chat about his Silo trilogy, as well as the Apple TV Plus adaptation of the series. Hugh is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of the Silo series, Wool, Shift, and Dust, as well as Beacon 23, Sand, Halfway Home, and Machine Learning. His works have been translated into more than 40 languages and have sold millions of copies worldwide. Adapted from his bestselling sci-fi trilogy, Silo is now streaming on Apple TV+, with an adaptation of Beacon 23 due in 2023. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Hugh. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm so glad you're here to chat with me. I am a huge fan of Wool and Silo and all of it, so I can't wait to chat about it. Yeah, thanks. It's been exciting. I bet it has. And you have even more exciting news. You just got married. Yeah, well, we we got married in November and just renewed our vows at uh, Burning Man this year, which was very exciting. Okay. I saw the photos on Instagram and I wasn't sure. And it did look like Burning Man with all the mud. And I was like, okay, I have to ask here. Yeah. This year, most years it's dust and heavy winds and heat. And this year it was rain, but every year it's supposed to be uncomfortable in some way and never the way you you expect. That's kind of the part of the point. Okay. So you renewed your vows. Well, that's still exciting. And yes, I guess it made for a lot more excitement with all the rain. Yeah. Rain's good luck at a wedding. And uh, not many people have been married in in the rain on the playa. So that was really special. I bet. Well, congratulations. Thanks. So I'm a little late to the wool saga. I really enjoy finding new TV shows to watch, especially lately when there's not nearly as much coming out with the writer's strike. 
So my husband and I started watching Silo, and somewhere in the credits, I saw that it was based on a book series. And I was like, oh, shoot, because I usually love to read the book and then watch something. But we were already midway through the series. So we finished up the series, and then I went back, and I've read Wool, and I have Shift, but I haven't started it yet. I'm one of the people that has found your book series based on the TV show, so I can't wait to talk all about all of it. But can we go back to the beginning for those like me who weren't there from the original times when you wrote Wool and just kind of walk me through how it all unfolded? Yeah, it's, it's a very unusual origin story. I was writing some young adult um, space opera novels at the time and had this idea for a, a book that I just was not going to have time to get to. So I ended up writing it as a novelette, just a 50-page story to try to get the idea down. And I published it myself online for 99 cents, and you could buy a little paperback for $5. And I didn't think anything else about it. I went back to writing my novels. Meanwhile, that little story just took off on Amazon and started getting crazy reviews and, and word of mouth. And you know, you don't make much on a 99 cent ebook. You make like 35 cents. So this is not a commercial endeavor at all. It was just a story I was passionate about. But it, it started selling at such a quantity that I was able to quit my day job and, and work on the rest of the series in, in a serialized fashion. And so over the course of the next six months, I released uh, four more parts. And those five parts together became the novel Wool. And that hit the New York Times bestseller list just on, again, on word of mouth. And I had agents and publishers reaching out to me and Hollywood reached out. We did a, a film deal with Ridley Scott. I got an agent. We started publishing all around the world, but I, I kept self-publishing in the U.S. and did that for uh, most of my career. And uh, we've been working on adapting this for a long time with with Ridley and Steve Zalian. And when I had an opportunity to get the rights back, we decided to send it out to for TV instead because the the way stories were being told is, was was changing, and I was really excited to tell this over several seasons rather than just trying to compress it down into 90 minutes on the big screen. And so over 10 years later, we finally released a TV show that we've been working on for a long time. And it was the number one drama that Apple's ever had. It's an unbelievable level of production and and the writing and the, the sets, the cast. It's just unbelievable what Apple and AMC were able to put together for, for releasing this. And we were real deep into filming season two when the strikes happened. So we're eager to get all that behind us, get, get everybody making a livable wage and, and get back to shooting so we can keep telling the story. I have so many questions. So first, when was it that you started doing the serialized stories that became Wool? I believe it was 2010 when the first part came out and I wrapped it up. Uh, it was late 2010. And then I finished it around March of 2011. And then you put it all into one book, and that's when it hit the New York Times? Yeah, and the only reason I put it into one book is one reader sent a little, I think you wrote an Amazon review and said how annoying it was to click on five titles on the store. Can you just combine them into one PDF? And I was like, sure. So I, I combined them and called it the Wool Omnibus and, and spent like literally two minutes on it this ugly yellow cover just to make it easier for people who didn't want to download them separately. And once it was combined, all the other 
titles that were all at the top of the bestseller list just kind of trickled down and that one book became the number one seller on Amazon briefly. And then did you write the next two after that? Yeah, I wrote Shift. The So the series comes out, it's, it's released as a trilogy now. Those five parts are in the novel Wool. And the second book, Shift, came out in three parts originally. And the third book, Dust, was released as a single novel. Yeah, I was, I was working on those over the next year, interspersed with some other stories that I released at the same time. I'm always working on a, a few things at the same time. Shift takes you to the time before Wool, is that correct? It starts there. There's, um, I don't want to say too much because right, right. it's very, I've like, I'm a huge reader. I read everything that I can. There's been periods of my life where I'm reading a book a day. And part of the joy of being a writer is that you get to do things that you're, that you don't feel like is already on the bookshelf. And so I took a lot of risks and did a lot of unstandard things with these stories. And I think that's part of the reason that they've been so successful is there's really nothing else like them out there. I agree with that completely. And that is what drew me to them because they are so unique and so creative. And that's one of the things I want to talk about in a minute. So you self-published all three of them. And then what happened next? How did Mariner pick them up? That's uh, If you're into publishing, this is a really interesting story. I was doing well enough that there was no publishing deal that enticed me. I was you know, came up to New York and was serenaded by all the major publishers and they, they put their best offers on the table. And I would show up at meetings with my laptop and show them what my, my monthly sales were. And there was just no way they could compete with what I was earning on my own because you make a fraction with the publishers that you can on your, uh, if, if you're having success, you can make 70% on your own and you make maybe you know less than 15% with a publisher. So you have to ask them, you know, how are they going to guarantee a, a five to six times uh, sales rate to justify going with them. And what we kept saying is we, we're looking for a print partner so we can have a big distribution push in bookstores, get into airports and, and other things like that. So let's do a print-only deal that I'll keep all the digital rights. And no one was interested. Um, they were willing to pay seven figures for all the rights, and they weren't willing to take the print rights for free, which let me know how they valued the digital rights and that I was correct in, in valuing them so highly myself. So we rejected offers in, into the seven figures, um, which got a lot of press at the time. And meanwhile, Simon & Schuster finally came back after three rounds of turning deals down, finally came back and said, we'll do a print-only deal. And part of our stipulation was, and I have one of the best agents in the business, that's why I get away with all this insanity. One of the stipulations was that we get the rights back after five years completely. It doesn't matter how well the book is selling. And so they did this deal. They were willing to, to make some money instead of letting me keep it all. And when we got the rights back, I was going to self-publish again, but we went back out to publishers. And again, we got a really good deal, this time for the whole trilogy with uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And this is five years after my first deal and six or so years after the books have all been published. And now we're out getting seven-figure deals again and again, getting the rights back after five years. And that's, that's where we are now. HarperCollins has bought HMH. So I'm now with HarperCollins. I don't think HarperCollins would be willing to do the kind of deal that would require keeping me. So in the next four or five years, I'll get the rights back and, and sell publish again. And 
yeah, this is how I think authors should be operating. It's how we operate overseas. I don't know why we can't get the same treatment in the U.S. that we get in foreign markets. Okay, this is fascinating. I did not know a lot of that. I didn't know that you had a deal first with Simon & Schuster, which explains all of the different covers in the U.S. I was having trouble understanding why there were so many different covers, because usually you don't see quite so many in one market. So that explains that. And then I knew that Houghton Mifflin had been bought by Harper and Mariner was renamed, you know, so I understood all of that part of it. But that's fascinating, the five years. And that's great that you were able to negotiate that. But it also speaks to how great your stories are. Yeah, I think if you believe in your work enough to get your own readership and develop some sales, it just puts you in a better position when you're negotiating with publishers. I think a lot of authors get so excited to hand their work over to publishers thinking that they're going to get the best treatment and the best marketing for the for the entire life of the writer and that's not generally the case you get you know a bit a bit of a push for a few months and then they're on to the next thing and i i always knew that in another 5 years i'm still going to be interested in doing promotions and having you know owning the the rights to the work and and all of that so i think if you believe in your story one of the worst feelings in the world is when you sign over the rights to that story to somebody else. Well, and that's going to lead me into my next question, which had to do with the screen adaptation. You mentioned, and I didn't know this, that you'd had film rights that then reverted to you. And your timing was perfect in terms of then having it adapted by Apple, because as you mentioned, all of these streaming services bloomed in the in-between time. So stories were being told differently. And yours, I think, lends itself so well to a platform where there are multiple episodes, multiple seasons. I can't even imagine trying to squeeze it into 90 minutes. It was hard enough. I mean, once I read Wool after watching Silo, I was like, oh, they didn't even get through all of Wool. So I can't imagine what it would have been like in 90 minutes. Yeah, we had great scripts for Ridley's company. And we we had two different uh, scripts that we really liked. But you have to remove a whole lot. Right. And it's so much more fun. We, we actually got to add parts of the story that are just alluded to in the novel, like with Holston and Juliet working together that it's just such fan service. It was so much, it was such a joy in the writer's room for us to create new stuff rather than just retell what had already been enjoyed in the books. Absolutely. So I guess I didn't even really end up asking my question, which was, when you went to sell to Apple, did you have a say in what was happening? Did you work on the screen adaptation? I'm assuming yes. I was an executive producer on it and I was in the writer's room as we blocked out the first season had a general idea of how many seasons it would take, blocked out the episodes and the pilot in, in high detail. We, we had to solve a lot of problems on how to break this into a different medium. And it's been a joy to work with Graham Yost and all the other writers on it and with Morton Tilden and, and all the directors and beyond set. And yeah, my, my main goal has been to answer questions, give more insights, help with the world building, help solve some thorny little you know, plot points here and there and to give notes on, on the scripts. And I've been able to do that while I, you know, do other writing and stuff on the side. So it's been as much, uh, I've had as much input as I could possibly want. And I can see the effects of it on the screen. You know, I remember when I'm watching the show, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad I pushed for that character motivation to be strengthened or for this to change. Cause you know, everyone's pulling in the same direction, but you can see all the fingerprints on the finished work. And it's very satisfying when that happens. How many seasons do you expect it to last? 
Well, I never expected to get one. My, I, I keep my expectations super low. If we, if we got everything we wanted, we could tell the whole trilogy in four seasons. And Graham has been pretty clear on that in other interviews that if we get everything we want from Apple, we could tell everything in, in four seasons of TV. And I think it's best to just let the story tell you how long it should be and not look at, okay, this is profitable. Let's string this out and tell as many seasons as possible. Everyone working on this can go tell other stories. So we just want to um, make it as clear and concise and enjoyable as possible, wrap it up in a way that we're in control of and happy with, and then we can all move on to the next project. I think that's wise, not string it out too long. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we've seen the fatigue in some other shows, not just with the audience, but with the creators. Um, you really want to just stay excited. And right now, it's a shame we're on pause with the strikes because everyone is just thrilled with what we're doing with season two. It's just over the top bonkers and it's going to blow people away when they see what we're working on. I can't wait. Obviously, no spoilers, but the ending, I was just like, oh my gosh. But, you know, normally I am all about read the series first and then read the book series first and then watch the TV show. But I actually really thought it worked well for me to watch the TV show first and then go back and read because I was able to compare and contrast, and then also to kind of fill in some different things. So it actually worked really well for me. And I, when I posted about it on Instagram, I said, in this one instance, I don't think there's anything wrong with watching the show first and then going back and reading, because it kind of helped me envision some of the things in the book. But did you just love seeing it all come to life? I mean, the, the stairwell and the, the silo itself, I mean, it's just so well done. It's been an emotional journey. The first time I walked into the set of the the silo, which is an enormous set, it's they built the the actual silo, just three stories of it, and then green screen the the top and bottom so that you can ex- extend it. But it's it's this huge concrete and steel edifice that you can step inside of, and it's impressive for anybody. Like I've I've been on set with a lot of people. And everyone who sees it for the first time, all the actors, all the you know friends and family who've been on the set, just marvel at it. But when it's something that you just dreamed up one day and put on paper, it's so surreal. It just doesn't. It's like your brain can't quite handle that something that was so inexpensive to put on paper and that you wrote, you know, while you're working in a bookstore, um, just as a hobby is now this this massive, massive project. And I've, I've been on set a number of times and I never get over it. It's just really, really surreal. I can't even imagine. And I always think, gosh, if I lived there, I'd be the most fit person having to go up and down those stairs all the time. Yeah, I've had people say when I'm describing how long it would take to get up and down levels, they're like, that doesn't seem realistic. And then you go on set and you walk up and down the stairs a couple of times and it's a it's not just the vertical distance it's it's a the stairs are really quite a wide circuit and it's exhausting i do not want to be a porter in in the end times that's for sure i don't either that was definitely something that i learned how did you come up with this idea i mean i know it was a long time ago but the idea of a silo underground and then this concept cuz this is what again was resonating with me that they don't even know why they're there yeah, there's several, a lot of different ideas went into this, but the the central one, the, the underground part to me was is the like the least surprising or interesting because I am a child of the Cold War and we were all raised to think we we're going to have to live underground at some point because, you know, the, the world's going to get nuked and radiated and 
the age, you know, I was in from being born to age eight or nine, this was just drilled into me. So you see a lot of stories from people of my generation that are kind of bunker stories because of that. True, but not the size of the silo, I don't think, at least not that I've encountered, though I don't read a ton in this genre. Yeah. We're, so the reason the reason for the scale was uh, I, I just did some research on the about the size of a population you would want to try to survive, like a colony level uh, scale. And you, you can actually do it on quite a, like, it only, all it takes is a, a hundred or so humans to keep our genetic fitness at, at viable levels. But it makes for a less interesting story. So I just came up with the number 10,000 and figured out what size of a, a structure it would take to, to um, support that. The whole story is really built around the wall screen. That, to me, was the interesting metaphor. I wrote this story at around a time when I noticed that we were getting most of our news through screens. It wasn't just our phones. It was our laptops, our TVs, 24-hour news. What we were told to expect about the world, I realized was much different than the world that I would go out and, and discover. I was sailing around the world at a young age and going to places like Cuba that had a lot of propaganda uh, in the U.S. about what it's like there. And what I found was very different. I was working in uh, soup kitchens in the Bronx, and life there was different than what I thought it would be like. And we see this all the time. Like, I live in New York, and there's so many times that I have friends who never come here, and they're like, how are you, how, how are things there? Like, I hear the crime is just awful. And it's like the safe, one of the safest cities in the country, and and the crime here has been, you know, historic lows. Um, even with small blips here and there. So our perception of the world is just dominated by the bad news that we're, that we're absorbing through screens. And sitting there thinking about that for days, uh, and this is how my, my story ideas just kind of work, is I thought like, okay, what is this doing to us? And what's the, how can we exaggerate this? How can we make, make, turn this into a story? And at the same time, I was in working in a university bookstore and having all kinds of great discussions with friends who are professors and, you know, the concept of Plato's, the allegory of the cave from Plato's Republic kept coming up, which is this concept that we, we don't see the true forms of things where like we're in a cave, there's a fire behind us and we see shadows on a wall. And from the shadows, we try to determine what the, what the universe is like. And I realized that that cave analogy of Plato is around today, it would be a, a, a big screen instead. And, and that, then the wall screen was born. I, place it underground. And as far as being there long enough to forget your past, growing up in the South, I had to relearn when I started doing my own history reading what the Civil War was about, because I, I grew up in an area that still thought the South were the good guys. And it was so jarring to like get into high school and start thinking about the world you know, from first principles and realize that people around you had been telling you something that just wasn't true for a long time. And the Civil War was about 150, 160 years in the past, around the time that I was dealing with this. And, and I realized it doesn't take that long, like the span of two lifetimes, for us to have very little clue about what life was like, what the motivations were, what the names of people were, you know, the, the names of regular people, even family members. Like, it's very quick for us to change our the way we talk and the way we behave and what our morals and values are. So all of those ideas were gathered up and put together into a, a short story. 
and that's yeah, that's that every one of my books has a story like that about how those different parts came together. Okay, that is so interesting. And that's so interesting that you say that about New York because my daughter goes to school there. And people are always saying that to me. And I'm like, please, we spend a lot of time up there and it is such an easy place to get around. I never feel remotely threatened. It is such a wonderful place. And I think you're right. I also think it's clickbait. I mean, I think negative news is what gets people to click on their stories. And so people lead with that stuff, which is terrible. So I always try to avoid doing that. But I think that's what gets the news out there. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And it's our fault for clicking on it. You know, right. they, they they wouldn't do it if we if we weren't. But and and I say it's our fault, but it's millions of years of evolution. Like if some if those someone saying, "Hey, there's danger over there," and other people are telling a joke, the people who said, "What danger?" are the ones who survived, had kids. You know, it, it's it's a it's compounding interest on paranoia, and that's what we're left with today. And I, I I wish you know the more people know about it, the more you can resist those kinds of impulses and and see the world for the way it is. And that's you know one of the metaphors for this novel. I, when I originally published it, I dedicated the, the novel to those who dare to hope. And the, the idea there is that optimism is, is courage. Uh, I think it's like too cool for people to talk about how bad things are getting. When, if you look over history, things are getting better over time. And I want to celebrate that kind of optimism. And ironically, I do it through writing about the end of the world. I was going to say end of times. <laughs> well, what about naming the series Silo? How did that come about? I mean, obviously I understand, but like, how did you end up with that as the title? We, it was called Wool for most of the production. Even Apple's holding page had Wool listed up to like three months or two months before the show came out. I just got a call one day and someone in marketing decided that Wool was too esoteric. What I love about the, the story but the title wool is the, the whole story is about having the wool pulled over your eyes. And there's all kinds of other metaphors there. It works on, on four or five different levels. And I think the success of the book has a lot to do with the title being a little unusual. So <clears throat> I thought it was a shame that they changed it. Uh, I think we could have stayed with wool and it would have been more interesting. But when you sign rights away, you give up a lot of choices like that, a lot of decisions, and you have to know when to push back and, and make a fuss and when it's not as important. And I didn't think that that change was important enough for me to like push back on it. So um, Apple decided at the last minute they wanted to call it Silo and the show's been a, su a big success. So maybe they're the smart ones and I'm the idiot. <laughs> well, and congratulations on the success. I knew that it was sitting there at number one, but I didn't realize it had been their biggest show ever, but I completely understand why it is. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think Ted Lasso is their biggest show of, of all time. And so they're, they, they say it's their number one drama. And I'm super happy with that. I love being the top of any category. So that's incredible. I didn't expect, I, I worried when we were creating this, like, how are people going to find it? There's so much content coming out all the time. And not everybody has every service. So you're, it's not like the old days where you're public, you're putting something out on one of four channels. So anyone can click over. The worry when you're putting your heart and soul into something for a streaming service is that it could just disappear. And so we're just super fortunate that it's had the exposure that it's had. I try to explain to my kids what it was like when I was young and you had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and you pretty much just watched something on one of those three or PBS sometimes. 
And it was just what was on at nine o'clock was what you watched and they have no concept. And it is overwhelming now because just trying to even decide which platform to start with and what to watch can be very overwhelming. But I think as long as you stick with one of the really big ones, I mean, what I usually do, we were watching Ted Lasso and then you look at what's in the top 10 and there was Silo and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And then you, you know, hop onto it or people recommend. I mean, word of mouth is still such a huge thing. Yeah, it's enormous. It's Mm -hmm. uh, you can't manufacture a hit. All the marketing dollars in the world aren't worth people getting excited about something and telling all their friends about it. It's, It's the best way for something to grow. I think that's exactly right. Well, one thing that is really positive about screen adaptations is that you find an entirely new group of readers. What has that been like for you? It's been incredible. It's a testament to how many more people tune into their TVs or the internet or their cell phones than than spend time in bookstores because, you know, I get recognized by hardcore fans and it just happens a few times a year on the, on the street. But the name recognition, if, if I meet somebody and they're like, well, what do you do? And you mentioned you're a writer. What have you written? Uh, well, I wrote a book called Wool. That was a bestseller. Oh, never heard of it. That's the, I've had that conversation, you know, for, for a decade now. But when you tell people, have you heard of Silo and Apple? Almost everybody says, yeah. And, and you know, I, probably four times out of 10 people say, oh my God, yeah, I love that. So the, the number of people who are being drawn into this world is it, it, it's just astronomically higher because of the numbers in TV entertainment versus in, in books, which is a lifetime reader and bookseller and writer. It's, it's sad to say, but it's just the reality. And so it's, it's been a huge new audience. It, the book sales have gone up seven, eight X and, and stayed there. It's just been uh, an incredible blessing to have Apple believe in the story and put so much effort behind it. Because, yeah, I mean, I was already really beyond lucky to have the book sitting on the shelf as long as it has. It's been a perennial seller for for 10 years now, which I I can tell you if someone who worked in bookstores, just almost never happens. You don't don't hope to become a classic when you write a, a novel. And I never dreamt of it in my life. And yet the book has been like sitting on bookstore shelves for a long time. And, and now, yeah, it's finding, it's finding more people. And I just, it, it's like winning the lottery. And then, and then the lottery people come to you and say, we made a mistake. Um, we're supposed to move the decimal over a couple. Uh, here's, here's the rest of your winnings. You know, you just don't, no one should get this kind of, this kind of luck, I think, piled on them. I do think you're right. As a lifetime reader myself and having worked at a bookstore and obviously very involved in the book world. It is depressing sometimes that the TV side of it ends up pushing your story up there. But the positive is that it has also impacted your book sales. I mean, if it just was the screen part of it and nobody's buying your books, then I think that would be more depressing. But the fact that it has really impacted your book sales, that people watch the TV show and then go buy your books is incredible. Totally. And the best response I get from people, and I I get these emails and people tell me this in person all the time, is that... They, they were watching the show, they picked up the book, and now they're back to reading. They, they lost, they, and we all do this. People go in and out of gobbling books and then having a bit of a quiet period. And when you hear that someone was, it didn't just help them get into your book, but now they're reading other books and they're back into reading. That is a huge compliment. And I love hearing those stories. I agree. And I also just wondered about reading the book so close in time to watching the series, because I think I read, I picked it up maybe within a week of finishing the series. And the book is big. I read it in like a day and a half. 
And I thought it was fascinating. I loved comparing and contrasting. And the story goes a lot further than the TV show did. I, I thought it was great. And I can't wait to start Shift. Thanks. And what's been wild is hearing from people who've read the books first or watched the TV show first. It seems like it works really well both ways. I hear, and I can see why it could work well both ways, but I hear the, the most positive experiences from both parties. So I don't think there's any wrong way to go about it. It's we, we didn't try to tell the exact same story scene by scene, which means whichever version you read first, the other medium adds to that, just fills in detail and shows you something new. So there's really no way, no wrong way to go about it. Exactly, which is perfect. Because normally I don't really like to watch the screen adaptation first because then in my mind, I'm not creating my own version of what people look like. But in this instance, it didn't matter. And it kind of helped me fill in some of the details. But I think you're right. I think you could do it either way and it would work beautifully. Agreed. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? I just finally read Circe, which I had missed the first time around. And it's this uh, retelling of a character in the Odyssey. It's, uh, it's basically poetry. The prose is so beautiful. It affected my writing for a while. I had to like make sure I wasn't, you know, going to start writing in a different style because it was just so addictive the way the way it was written. And in the same way that this is how you lose the time war really affected me in, in its beautiful prose. And another book I that was on my list and sitting on my nightstand for over a year and finally got around to it and I read it in a sit- single sitting is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow instant classic, one of my favorite reads in a long time. So th- those are my two f- kind of genre favorite reads. Also, one of my favorite books for, in a long time is The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, which I think might be one of the top 10 American novels ever written. So I'm, I'm all, all over the place and reading stuff that most people have read you know, a while back, but that's the nature of my TBR pile. Absolutely. And Hugh, do you read anything in the genre that you write in the sci-fi or dystopian genre? I don't. Um, I have when the like Dog Stars, I really loved Station Eleven. And um, I'll play uh, a video game like Last of Us, which I love the adaptation of that. But I, I tend to read nonfiction and literary stuff, just things outside of my genre. And the the main reason is that if I have an idea for something and I encounter anything close to that, that's already out there, then I feel like I don't need to do it. And I'd rather have the freedom to write whatever stories come to mind and not worry if I'm what I'm treading on. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I hear authors say that pretty regularly. Either they read a ton in their genre or they don't read at all in their genre. So I was just kind of curious how you handled that. And I was thinking about The Last of Us when you were talking about being midway through the filming of your second season because The Last of Us was so good. And I know they were ramping up or at least beginning to think about their season two. And it's also been hiccuped, which writers need a living wage. So I understand all that. But it just makes me bummed because I'm so excited for season two of that as well. Yeah, I think we're going to have a dry period coming up for a you know six-month window where it seems like nothing new is coming out or a lot of reality TV in either way. Yeah. That's to be a good time for people to catch up on their reading. That's what I was just going to say. More time for reading. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Cindy. Don't you know that you're a grown up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.